Well, if you have one, you can turn in a Bible to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Text is also there in the bulletin on the next page. Um, well, you've, you've probably seen the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, maybe most of you have seen it. Uh, maybe you... <laughs> Inconceivable. <laughs> That's great. Uh, <clears throat> maybe you remember the ending. So it's after, you know, the brave hero Wesley uh, has rescued his true love, Buttercup, from a fate worse than death, from marriage to rotten Prince Humperdinck. And uh, they're riding into the country on white horses as the sun rises on a new day, and they stop to kiss. And the narrator says, uh, since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure, and this one left them all behind. <laughs> right? So uh, we could say something similar about what we're reading this morning. Matthew has spent a couple of chapters telling about Jesus working these wonders, and he's demonstrating his love and his power by healing and saving people's lives. And the miracles have been ramping up toward a climax here in our passage. So we could say, since the invention of the miracle, there have been some that were the most amazing, the most joyful, and this one left them all behind. This miracle. Because here Jesus raises someone from the dead. And uh, we shouldn't be able to talk about that without a stunned look on our faces. This is the miracle of miracles. And if Jesus can do this, just consider the implications. This miracle is reported in each of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because they have sort of similar perspectives uh, in their stories on Jesus. Uh, and it's always told the same way in each of these Gospels. It's uh, the story of this, the miracle of miracles, Jesus raising this little girl from the dead, that's interrupted by this woman who had this bleeding for 12 years. And um, so as we consider the implications of this resurrection account, we will also need to consider how it's connected to the healing of this woman. Because there's a connection there that we're supposed to see. And ultimately, we'll learn something great about Jesus and about our relationship with him. So let's get into that. Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would give our minds and our hearts the focus of your Holy Spirit on Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in, and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment... I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, uh, as we've considered uh, many times in our course uh, here through Matthew's gospel, Matthew wrote this gospel for a Jewish audience. Uh, and he recorded a growing opposition to Jesus from among the Jews, particularly from the religious leaders, from the rulers, uh, scribes and Pharisees. Right? So they were in positions of power in Israel, and they saw Jesus as a threat, so they became his chief antagonists, his archenemies, and ultimately his murderers. Uh, there were exceptions, of course, and we have one here. It's this ruler, this father, who comes to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. So Mark and Luke, as they're telling this, uh, giving their accounts, they uh, give him a name. His name was Jairus. And uh, they say that he's the ruler of a synagogue. So for those who are familiar with the gospel stories, we're surprised to see someone in his position, uh, someone of his status, not only to approach Jesus and ask for help, but to kneel before Jesus, to humble himself before Jesus, really to exalt Jesus as Lord as he humbles himself and kneels before Jesus, to beg him for help, and to ask Jesus to do the impossible, to raise his daughter from the dead. We're surprised to see someone like this coming to Jesus this way. Facing uh, the terrible reality of having to bury his daughter has made this ruler desperate. It's brought him to a point where... uh, He comes to the only one who can help, regardless of how that might be seen by others of his profession, right? Others in his same sort of social position or status uh, might look on him strangely for coming to Jesus, but he comes anyway. Clearly, he's heard that Jesus can do wonders, and he believes that Jesus might even do this wonder of wonders, even though no one's heard of Jesus doing something like this before. Uh, In fact, he demonstrates some measure of faith and confidence in Jesus. He says in verse 18, uh, as he kneels before Jesus, he says, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. There's no earthly reason for him to hope for anything like this. People don't just come back from death. Anybody who's had any experience with the death of loved ones uh, knows this sadly all too well. Dead is dead. A dead body has as much potential for coming to life as a rock. His daughter has passed the point of no return. It's already too late, but his faith in Jesus apparently overrides all of our experience with things like that that are normal in this world. Apparently overrides the expectation that dead is dead. He believes in Jesus for what is unbelievable. And this is great. It means that people are starting to learn what Jesus has been teaching, and they're starting to believe the signs of his love and his power, and they're starting to make their their own extrapolations. If he can do this, maybe he can do this, you know? And um, they might not totally get it. They might not understand everything Jesus is trying to communicate through these signs that he's performing or the the things that he's teaching, but they're coming to Jesus for everything, and that's good. Just come to Jesus for help and see where he takes you. And here's something very interesting that Jairus has uh, apparently also learned about Jesus. When he said, my daughter has just died, he says, but come and lay your hand on her and she'll live. 
so we might think that this is highlighting Jesus' miraculous power, that just the mere touch of Jesus would accomplish what is impossible. And that's true, but here's the real significance of this detail, is that this synagogue ruler would have known the scriptures well enough to, to know that touching a dead body makes you unclean. To lay your hand on a dead body makes you unclean, according to Numbers 19 in God's very word, right? So even going into the same room with a dead body makes you unclean. Uh, and becoming unclean means that you're not welcome in God's holy presence. It means you're not welcome in the temple. You're, you're ritually impure. You're not able to interact fully with the community of God's people in relationship to God. So he was asking Jesus to do something that, you know, good religious rulers don't ever ask other good religious people to do. This religious ruler was asking for Jesus' blessing at the cost of Jesus becoming unclean. That's what he's asking. And Jesus is good with that. It says he rose and followed him along with his disciples. <clears throat> and, uh, and on his way to help this VIP, right, this very important person, the ruler of synagogue, Jesus is interrupted by someone from the bottom of the social ladder, the other end of that social spectrum. Right? So behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And that word uh, for made well is uh, sozo, it's, is the root of it. It's translated healed or saved. It can be translated both healed or saved. I'll be healed, I'll be saved, if I can just touch his garment. So uh, here's this woman. I'm going to impose on you, and I'm going to ask you to do a very Christian thing and think about this woman for a moment. Uh, because in itself, that's something the world would never do, even just giving her your, your attention for a minute. She's unnamed. Uh, and that's to highlight the fact that nobody cared for her. She's the quintessential invisible person. Just imagine her plight, if you would. Her ailment is more than a minor inconvenience, especially in the ancient world. It's a discomfort that she can never ignore, that she's always got to attend to. And it saps her strength and it worries her. Her lifeblood has been draining away for 12 years. It's a miserable existence. It's a sort of living death that she endures because the life is in the blood, right? Death is hanging over her life like this ugly, glaring sign. She's constantly reminded of the trajectory of her life toward death, this inevitability of death that just hangs over her all the time. We assume that the hemorrhaging is uh, from the reproductive organs, which, again is explicitly mentioned in the scriptures in Leviticus 15 as grounds for uncleanness, right? This kind of bleeding is grounds for uncleanness. If this were a sermon on Leviticus 15, uh, we would probably spend a lot more time exploring the symbolism of that, the connections. Uh, but let me just say this. That uncleanness is not necessarily the same thing as sinfulness. It may be easily confusing uh, to us. Uncleanness is not necessarily the same thing as sinfulness. Uh, to become clean, you don't always have to offer sacrifices for the atonement of sin, for forgiveness. And so it isn't always a moral issue. It's not always connected to your guilt. So there's no reason to think that this woman suffered this ailment because of her sin. And according to Old Testament laws, uh, you can become ritually unclean accidentally without really knowing that you were doing it. Through accidental contact with other people or with things that are unclean. So through no fault of your own, really. So again, like with touching a dead body, touching this woman or touching something that she had touched 
would make other people unclean because uncleanness is somehow contagious. It's shared through contact, right? That's, that's what we're taught in scriptures. Not like a disease where something jumps from you to a, another person physically, like a germ travels from body to body through physical contact. Uh, with the laws about this, this transmissibility of uncleanness, God is teaching us about a spiritual reality that is declared by him. He says something called uncleanness can be transmitted from person to person. But the practical effect on this woman's life is that her ailment would have meant her rejection, no personal contact uh, with others, no human touch and general shunning from society for 12 years. So do that Christian thing and consider her with sympathy. Imagine the sense of loneliness and isolation that she can do nothing about. It's not her fault. So she's pretty desperate. She's been brought to a point where she has to come to the only one who can help. And apparently she too has heard amazing things about Jesus because she believes that he can heal her. But she's too maybe embarrassed, maybe ashamed, maybe self-conscious to come to him, you know, sort of out in the open publicly. Uh, maybe she's gotten used to moving through the shadows of society, sort of trying to avoid the attention of other people because of the pain of the rejection that she faces there. Maybe she worries that Jesus might recoil from her. I don't know. Uh, maybe she just doesn't want to bother such an important person. But again, we see some measure of confidence and faith in Jesus. She thinks, if, if I only touch his garment, I'll be healed. And he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to speak to me or even notice me if I can just be near him. If I can just touch the tassel on the corner of his robe, that'll be enough. Uh, this isn't superstition. Um, as if, you know, miraculous healing power is somehow imbued in garments and you can just pass these things around and heal people remotely or anything like that. This is faith. It's trust in Jesus. He himself says that and he commends her and he heals her. It's not his garment that heals her. It's Jesus who heals her. Uh, but before we get to that point, I'd like to point out um, one more remarkable thing about the idea that this woman has. She wasn't demanding Jesus' attention, but she's still imposing on him. Because, again, according to scriptures, he would inadvertently become unclean as she touched his garment. And she touched the fringe of his garment. And that word fringe, that's literally the tassel, the tassel of his garment. So uh, the Hebrews would have been familiar with this from their scriptures again. Uh, so Numbers 15 says that God commanded Israel to, to make these tassels and to put a blue cord on them. Uh, on the corners of their garments, right? so like the corners of your robes, uh, to look at them and remember all the commandments that the Lord has, has given and to do them. Right? So she's, she's focusing on, her focus point, her, she's touching this tassel that calls to mind obedience to God's law. Maybe she's confronted in that moment with the reality of what it was that she was doing. She's, she's the unclean touching the clean. She's hoping for some sort of exchange. She's hoping for Jesus' cleanness maybe to purify her and to save her. Right? But she's approaching Jesus in a way that good religious people never would. Like Jairus, like the ruler of the synagogue, she was pursuing Jesus' blessing at the cost of Jesus becoming unclean. 
And Jesus is good with that. So he said, he turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So there isn't even a hint of reprimand in what he says to her. How dare you touch me and make me unclean? On the contrary, he addresses her with a term of affection, of fondness, of endearment, and he speaks words of comfort and encouragement to her. And this uh, reminds me, uh, there's details here that remind me of the story of Ruth and Boaz. So Boaz is this cheerful, kind man. He's full of the compassion and the joy of the Holy Spirit, uh, very much like what God would be like if he were a human being, Boaz. Ruth is a refugee. She's an outsider. She's just trying to stay alive in a place where, generally speaking, she isn't welcome. And Boaz is generous to Ruth. So she goes to him pretty boldly, pretty scandalously, imposes on him. And she says to him, spread your wings over your servant. Spread literally the corners of your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So that word, that phrase, uh, you know, wings, spreading, spreading your wings, corners of your garment, that's always the same. It could be translated either way uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but here, you know, Ruth, she's, she's hoping to find shelter and refuge in this man who really is like God. And Boaz says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And he takes care of her and he spreads his wings over her like God does his people so that his people say, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In the shadow of your wings, I'll sing for joy, Psalm 63. So this, <clears throat> this woman uh, here in our story, she's been losing her lifeblood for so long. She goes to Jesus to find help in the shadow of his wings. And he speaks the words of the steadfast love of God. Take heart, daughter. So there are two daughters mentioned in this story. First, you have the daughter of a ruler. And then you have the daughter of the ruler. Humanly speaking, uh, this woman may well have been older than Jesus, but he's the Lord. He's the Lord. He's her, her creator. He's the one who made this woman in his own image for a relationship. <clears throat> and just as Jairus loved his little girl whom he lost, the Lord Jesus had compassion on this daughter of his in her suffering. And his words communicate this to her. And his words communicate this to us, to us. She was the Lord's daughter, and we are the Lord's daughter. We're the Lord's children. And when he tells you that you're his child, these are words of life and healing and love that he speaks to you. None of his children are an accident. He deliberately and lovingly chose to create us and to save us for a relationship with himself. So he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly this woman was made well. <clears throat> She was healed. She was saved from her uncleanness, the suffering, the isolation from all of it by Jesus because she came to Jesus and he loved her and he spoke it and it happened. Her faith wasn't some magic power that worked the healing. The garment wasn't some magic power that worked the healing. Her faith was in Jesus. Her faith brought her to Jesus, connected her to him. He was there for her. He healed her. He cheered her heart. He welcomed her into his family. He doesn't just help very important people, VIPs, like Jairus. He helps the lowly and the outcasts 
those of no status, those with nothing to offer, and he calls them daughter. This poor woman is overlooked, she's unimportant, but she's made significant by his attention and by the declaration of his affection. So take heart, no one is beneath his notice. And Jesus was not disqualified through contact with her uncleanness, not disqualified to save her, to cleanse her, not disqualified then to continue on to help Jairus' daughter. <clears throat> so it says, when, Jairus, uh, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Uh, so it was custom to begin uh, funeral mourning and burial without delay. Sometimes we delay, you know, up to like a week or more um, between death and a funeral. And we can do that because we have ways of preserving corpses. But they began funeral mourning and burial without delay because corpses begin to rot and stink without delay. And they had no way of holding even that back. So... I don't know if hiring musicians at such times is a universal human practice, but they did it in that culture, and it's pretty normal for uh, Christian memorial services. That's something to consider why we sing at such times. Uh, but anyway, the grieving had begun, had, had be begun in a uh, formal way, a public way, so you can't make any mistake. This, this little girl was dead. It was terrible. It was clear. It was obvious. She's dead. And the inevitable and the irreversible thing had already happened, but that made no difference to Jesus. It made no difference. The dead are lost to us. The dead are not lost to him. He didn't even need to go inside to see the girl. He's been told she's dead. He hears and sees evidence that the grieving has begun. He knows she's dead. But no matter. He interrupts a reality that we think cannot be interrupted, can't be stopped, can't be changed, and he puts an end to it. His will is that she wakes up... <clears throat> as if she'd only been sleeping. That's not naive, wishful thinking on his part. That's not euphemistic for him to say. You know, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. <clears throat> just as with his friend Lazarus, Jesus recognizes death. He knows the girl's heart has stopped, that she no longer breathes, that no one can wake her. It's just that he can wake her. Because... He has the power to transform death itself into sleep. That's because of who he is, because of his will and love and power. Death is no more permanent than sleep. This is a Christian confession we find in many places in the New Testament where that language is used. Death is referred to as sleep because of the Lord's resurrection power. He turns our mourning into joy by turning death into just sleep. So he dismisses the musicians who came to play their dirges. They laugh at him, mocking when they should be laughing and dancing for joy. And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. So in touching the dead girl, we're, we're, you know, I think we're told to expect that something of the uncleanness of her death would be transmitted to him. That's what we expect. <clears throat> But what we see is his life being transmitted to her, overcoming her death. And this is why God taught us in his law about the contagion, the transmissibility of uncleanness. So that we could believe that 
the cleanness of Christ could be transmitted to us, that his purity could be ours, that his righteousness and holiness and his life could be shared with us through contact, not necessarily physical contact, relational contact. This is why Jesus came. This is why he died. This is why he rose again, to take our uncleannesses upon himself, because that can be done, God says, in order to cleanse us, to take our sins upon himself at the cross, because that can be done, God says, to bestow his righteousness upon us, to take our death to himself, to give us his life. He came to restore the daughter of the ruler, to bring her back from death and give her back to God. And that means you, as the people of God, who come to him with faith. Uh, So many times in the Old Testament, the people of God are called daughter, the daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of my people. He's not just speaking to the females, right? He's speaking to all his people as his daughter because God has such an affection for his people. There's this little detail that the gospel writers uh, all include in this story that this woman uh, with the discharge of blood, she'd suffered for 12 years, 12 years. Uh, Mark and Luke also point out the fact that the little girl who died was 12 years old. Right? So that's more than a coincidence. That's more than a throwaway detail. It's mentioned deliberately <clears throat> to call your attention to the fact that these daughters of rulers are representative of you, God's people. That's throughout the scriptures. The number 12 symbolizes the people of God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, it was the 12 sons of Jacob who became the 12 tribes of Israel. In just a few verses in our passage, uh, in our chapter, we'll see that number again as Jesus selects out 12 disciples to send out 12 apostles who proclaim the gospel and form the foundation of our church. They're like the the root, humanly speaking, of us. They represent us. This number 12 represents us. The daughter of the ruler is you. So, Just as these two daughters were characterized, their lives were characterized by ailments and uncleanness and isolation and even death, so also we suffer all these things. And the Lord has compassion on us, and he redeems us, and he revives us, and he takes us under the shadow of his wings where we find refuge. Just as these uh, two daughters imposed their uncleanness on Jesus, really, is what they were doing, so we also must... Seek him for forgiveness and restoration and impose upon him because it costs him his life. Maybe you'd rather try to stay under his radar, right? Uh, maybe you, you think you, you shouldn't bother such an important person, <clears throat> but he tells you to impose on him. Call upon his name. That's imposing on him. You must go to him and be confronted with the reality of God's law In your encounter with Jesus and trust that he welcomes this exchange your impurity for his purity your unworthiness for his worthiness <clears throat> now the whole idea for such an exchange is that really was his in the first place he's been telling us about it for thousands of years the Lord welcomes the opportunity to bless you at great cost to himself and he cheers you up and he comforts you, and he encourages you when you come to him. He has the power to transform death into merely sleep because of the power of his own death and resurrection, and he promises you a resurrection that will be just like his. 
If Jesus affectionately calls you daughter, and if he promised to raise you from the dead, and he can raise you from the dead, how can you be afraid of death anymore? The Lord knows what to do with his daughters who have died. The Lord knows what to do with your loved ones who have died. With all who have died. They'll all meet Jesus. There will be a resurrection for everyone. And he will do what is right with each and every one. And we can trust him. And we can trust his judgment. And we can trust his power. And we can trust his love. And if he has the power and the love and the will to turn death into sleep, if he has the power of resurrection, then he has the power to turn any terrible thing into an opportunity for new life with God, for the good of his daughter, for the joy of his daughter. So take heart, daughter. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have already sent your son into the world to interrupt death on our behalf. You have already given him to us as a gift of your great love. We pray that you'd help us to believe what the scriptures teach, that we can come to you with faith, that we can ask you to do the unthinkable, even to forgive and save people like us, to grant us resurrection and eternal life, even at the cost of your son's life is already done. We've already imposed upon you too much, and you've spoken words to cheer us and to comfort us. We thank you. We rest in your mercy and in your grace to us. We believe this amazing good news and your wonderful promises, and we impose on you further to grant us your own spirit to help us with our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.